Well, hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 214. So glad you could join me. Uh, today's guest, Jane Hirschfield, is here. She'll be with us in about five or ten minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995, unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do it because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share, subscribe, let people know about this. It's going to be a great episode. Uh, tell your friends, share on social media, leave reviews on iTunes. Whatever you can do to help spread poetry around the internet is much appreciated. We're currently focusing on iTunes, trying to get that boosted traffic up because I'm not in an Apple environment, so I don't really didn't really know how it was going on. But now that we have graphics and they have analytics available for me at iTunes, I know that we could be doing better. So let's do better on iTunes by leaving a review and sharing it there. And that would be great, too. Um, Now, we always like to start with our uh, Poets Respond poem. And uh, this week we had a poem from Jamie Jocks. And she couldn't be here tonight. She has an event uh, already scheduled. But she's writing about her father in this really touching poem. Um, It's just such a tender portrait of her father. Um, But it has to do with a lot of the politics that are going on in Canada right now. So let's take a look at this first. Uh, This is what she has to say about uh, the events that inspired this poem in the news. Uh, Here we go. This is Jamie Jocks again. She says, I live in Nova Scotia, a part of Canada where people of color have historically been marginalized and treated poorly. In recent years, we have a massive influx of Indian students without the infrastructure in place to support them when they arrive. At the same time, relations between India and Canada have plummeted in recent weeks, as our prime minister has asserted that a Sikh separatist was murdered by the Indian government on Canadian soil. With all this in the news, I couldn't help but start to reflect on my father's experience living here when he was young. Despite his determination to assimilate, I can see how India imprinted him. It's critical to have freedom of movement, but immigration also seems to create an internal split that is never reconciled, a lifetime of longing and nostalgia. So that's what Jamie had to say about this poem, and here it is, uh, Jamie's poem, which was uh, the featured poem on Sunday. Uh, This was uh, Jamie Jacques with, uh, on Wednesdays, my father and I eat at Masala Delight. On Wednesdays, my father and I eat at Masala Delight, and it smells like Nag Champa in Vindaloo. Our waitress, fresh from Kerala, wants to be a nurse, smiles when I say I'll write her a good review. I have seen the documentaries, eight students to one room. The failure of both governments stands before me, exhausted with an extra serving of raita. In 1966, my father arrived from Bombay. Growing up, we were surrounded by Murphy's and McDougal's and one terrible Indian restaurant where the owner knew us by name. Now, with gratitude, we are spoiled for choices. My father says he never suffered despite his strange accent and nervous stutter. I still remember his oversized suits Sunday nights at Swiss Chalet for supper, wouldn't let the waitress load her tray until we finished all the food on our plates. These Sikh separatists, what they don't understand is that when you come to Canada, you become a Canuck, he says, while serving himself biryani. Leave what you are fighting for behind. Forget about where you came from. Focus on where you are. My father says he never suffered fell in love with blonde hair and double-doubles, named me after Jamie Summers, now 80 years old. His hand shakes as he lifts a glass of water to his lips, stutter gone, the lilt in his voice still sticks. These days, he talks more about his childhood, his sisters scattered around heaven and earth, 
how they loved to dance, eat cashews, kulfi, and fruit from the bimbli tree. Make sure it has some heat, he still says every time he orders curry. His eyes light up when he tells the waitress he was one of the first ones here. 23, all arms and legs, no winter clothes. You should have seen him, my mother says. Thrifted sweaters and a little space heater to get him through. My father says he never suffered, and I pretend it's true. And once again, that was Jamie Jacques with uh, Sunday's poem on Randall.com. On Wednesdays, my father and I eat at Masala Delight. Um, so now we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest, as promised, Jane Hirschfield. So sit tight, and I'll be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Now, like I said, our guest today is Jane Hirschfield. She's the author of 10 collections and is one of American poetry's central spokesperson for concerns of the biosphere. Hirschfield's honors include fellowships from the Guggenheim and Rockefeller Foundations, the Poetry Center Book Award, the California Book Award. The list goes on and on. She's been published everywhere. She was chancellor of the Academy of American Poets. She was a, a monk, a Buddhist monk, living uh, in that kind of life for a while, too. Um, and she's the author of two of my favorite, literally my favorite collections of essays on poetry, Nine Gates uh, is one and Ten Windows is the other. Highly recommend you check all those out. She has a new book, The Asking, New and Selected Poems, that just came out. And here she is, Jane Hirschfield. Hi, Jane. Hi, Tim. Nice to see you in person after a very long time. Well, almost in person. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, this is close, and this is a really great way to do it. I love uh, getting to talk to people. And and you were mentioning, too, that you love podcasts, and I just love doing this. It's so great to get to meet a new poet and and engage on that level and share our love of poetry all in one space in one day. So I'm so glad you could be here. Well, thank you. Um, Let's start out with a a poem, and and one of the poems from the new section of the new and selected, uh, The Asking. Um, Should we start with uh, the poem, um, Today When I Could Do Nothing? Do you want to read that? Sure. And I'll just um, tip people off if they can't tell it right away just from the title, that at the end of the poem there is a date, and the date is March 17th, 2020, which was the day that the Bay Area counties first went into total stay-at-home orders. So it was a very quiet morning. Today, when I could do nothing. Today, when I could do nothing, I saved an ant. It must have come in with the morning paper, still being delivered to those who shelter in place. A morning paper is still an essential service. I am not an essential service. I have coffee and books, time, a garden, silence enough to fill cisterns. It must have first walked the morning paper as if loosened ink taking the shape of an ant. Then across the laptop computer, warm, then onto the back of a cushion, small black ant alone, crossing a navy cushion, moving steadily because that is what it could do. Set outside in the sun, it could not have found again its nest. What then did I save? It did not look as if it was frightened, even while walking my hand, which moved it through swiftness and air. And alone, without companions, 
whose ant heart I could not fathom. How is your life? I wanted to ask. I lifted it, took it outside. This first day when I could do nothing, contribute nothing beyond staying distant from my own kind, I did this. Yeah, and that was uh, Today When I Could Do Nothing, uh, one of the early poems from the new section of Jane Hirschfield's beautiful book, uh, The Asking, uh, New and Selected Poems. It's really, it, as far as a uh, book production goes, it's the nicest uh, book as an artifact I have, I have, I think, on my entire bookshelf. It's really beautiful. Well, if, since you say that, I'm going to hold it up because yeah. it really is an elegant, hefty thing. Um, it's, I, I was stunned when I saw it. The galleys gave me no idea how, how pretty it was going to be. Yeah, I mean, I, I expected it to be a great book, but I didn't expect it to be <laughs> such a beautiful presentation, too. And, and it's a, a perfect just collection of, of what you do with poetry. Um, and that poem is a perfect example of it, which I think I always thought of it, you know, from the start. You're one of the very first poets I read when I started to fall in love with poetry back like 25 years ago. And, and it's a poetry as a spiritual practice, really. It's a, it's, a try to, it's a way of engaging with the world. It feels like you're exploring internally as much as for sharing it with anybody. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how you found poetry to be a vehicle for spiritual practice? Was there, there some time that you realized that, that poetry was fundamental to that aspect of your being? Well, I started writing so very young that, you know, I didn't, I had no ideas about what I was doing. As soon as I was taught how to write, I began to write privately and hiding my poems under the mattress. And they were always poems, probably because I have absolutely no gift for narrative um, then nor now. But I think it is not so much that I discovered that poems were a path of, of enacting spiritual practice as that spiritual practice and poetry are for me both variations of the path of what it is to try to live a human life with full saturation of knowledge, with permeability and curiosity, with wanting always to figure out what have I not yet seen? Um, are there other ways that I might understand something? What is the music of this moment? Um, so, you know, I think my my entrance to Zen practice was later than my entrance to poetry writing, but both stem from the same rather sad, curious little girl. Yeah, and, and there's so much in common with the practice, too. And there's a meditative aspect to poetry, which is sort of un doubtably, you know, a part of it for so many people who love doing it. That's kind of what we love doing. We love that feeling of, of falling into a poem and you forget you, you're sort of, you know, excised from time. You know, the clock ticks by and you have no idea uh, that it's been two hours and you're focused on, on the poem for so long. And there's a way there's a there's a no self aspect to it that, that always struck me as very, very Buddhist. And the only other time that I get it personally is playing playing baseball because it's something I've played for so long. There's a sense of when the balls hit, you like move before you think of moving. It's like your body being in tune with the environment rather than thinking and acting as sort of a conscious being. There's sort of the sense of oneness that like yes. that no self state comes from doing really probably anything for a long enough time that you don't have to think about it and you can really be absorbed and lose time. And and, and that's the, the state of that the, the, I think we all love about poetry, too. And a lot of poets talk about that. 
Um, so do you think that, that that was what you were, were finding even as a young child when you were writing poems for the first time, that, that sense of losing yourself and, and not, not being a self? Sure. And also, it was very interesting in what you just said, you kind of checked both the, since you had mentioned the essay books, you checked both the opening essay in Nine Gates and the last essay in Nine Gates, because the opening one is called Poetry in the Mind of Concentration. And it is all about the the many forms of awareness that poems develop and how they develop a deeper attention and deeper awareness. And then the final essay in that book is about um, how to be an artist means, I believe, you know, it might not be true for everybody, but it's deeply true for me, falling out of the narrowly defined and narrowly perceiving self and falling into a state where because you have kind of disappeared into this act of attending to the world, you become open to everyone. You become a being of more compassion. You become a being of what in uh, traditional anthropology, uh, in the book by uh, the famous anthropologist Turner, the ritual process is called the liminal condition. And that's when you really aren't anyone you are between the past self and the future self. And traditional rituals create that state. They have ways of provoking it. And poems, I think, the very act of writing it, of falling into the search for the next word, the listening for the next music, the emotion that brought you to the poem in the first place, and the desire to somehow take that emotion and alchemize it into something deeper, broader, larger, um, transformative. Um, every time I write a poem, I fall a little bit into that liminal state or sometimes completely. You also made me think of when your description of, of baseball, especially um, many people might know and many people might know the the uh, work by the um, uh, Chick sent me high. Um, who, the, yes. Mm -hmm. So he wrote a book called Flow and talked about the flow state. And that's the same thing we're talking about. And, you know, it was a great book to read because you suddenly realized you weren't the only one experiencing these things, that it was possible. And it comes with a task which is just hard enough. If it's too easy, you go into flow state. You, you don't go into flow state. If it's too hard, you're just frustrated. But if something is just difficult enough to engage you entirely and a little more, then if you're lucky, the baseball coming towards you slows down and you see the seams of it as it arrives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So much tied to to the zone of proximal development, that concept, um, you know, pushing yourself beyond the boundaries of what you think you can do. And, and also, yeah. I think Elizabeth Bishop called it the, the self-forgetful, perfectly useless concentration is the heart of all art. And now there she sounds like a Buddhist teacher, for sure. <laughs> she definitely does. <laughs> so, so my question to you, because I have, uh, you know, I've been writing poems uh, for the Rattlecast every week. And I find, um, you know, the, the how much I like the poem is based on how much I can get into that state where I'm like sort of surprising myself and forgetting myself and not knowing and then in the unknowing learning something. But you can also fake it really easily too. Um, you know, you can sort of make a poem that sounds good and sounds like it works, um, but then you without even getting into that state. So how much of that 
to you? Do you ever write poems? Do you have trouble getting into that state? And do you ever sort of find yourself, um, you know, going through the motions and, and not entering that, but, but coming out with a poem anyway? Well, what you were saying reminded me of a devastating moment, probably 25 years ago, when I realized I had ended a poem saying something that sounded good, but I didn't believe. Hmm, yeah. And I was absolutely horrified, you know, and, and I just couldn't stand behind what it said, even though it was beautiful and moving. And so I, I am not a person who can fake writing my own poems, I'm just not. Mm -hmm. I don't write every day. I write when I have something to say. There are there are periods, you know, every other year or so, I'll go off to an artist retreat. And for a month, I will write something new every day because you can't waste that kind of generosity. Mm -hmm. But ordinarily, I write when something needs to come through me. And the whole process you named with things like discovering something unknown and being surprised... Those are so much part of the first draft process for me. I am, if I if I try to write a poem only on willpower with no need to make a discovery, it's such a bad poem that, as Emily Dickinson used to say, it would embarrass my dog, <laughs> and my dog has been dead for quite a long time now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I bring it up because uh, for sort of just that reason, because reading the whole, I mean, I, I couldn't help it. I didn't mean to read through the whole book, but I did. And it's a, you know, it's a big book. And, um, and it strikes me the consistency of sort of the, the depth of searching, I guess, maybe you could say, um, you know, there's no filler in any of your work anywhere. And I, um, and I was really impressed by that looking through it, because so many, you know, especially with the way that that, you know, poets has entered academia, and we have to keep publishing books to justify all that. And, you know, it feels good to publish books, and we keep doing it, there's this sort of sense that we sort of keep generating. And yet here, every poem feels essential. You know, it feels like something that needed to be written, which is a really incredible thing to see laid out in a book this length. So it's really interesting to hear you on that perspective. Thank you. Well, I've lived a long time. My impression of myself is that I'm never writing and I'm surprised as anyone <laughs> that I seem to have this large body of work. Um, I, I just it, it is never done uh, because, gosh, it would be nice to write a poem. It, it is done. The title of the book reflects that. You know, it's called The Asking. Mm -hmm. And I think I learned that poems are, for me, a way to ask the world and ask my own life and ask the language and ask the provocative image or the um, undoingly beautiful idea why do I love you? And what are you trying to tell me that I haven't heard yet? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's just a great book, um, full of great poems. And let's read another one. Uh, the next one I had written down is a thermopolium. And I wanted it this this seems because we have our poets respond series that we always do that we just read that first poem. And I, I remember getting poems about this new story, uh, which was <laughs> that they found food in the bottom of pots at, near Mount Vesuvius, like r scraps of food. I think that was where it was. And, uh, and, and so this is really a poets respond poem, actually. Um, and so I'm curious, uh, you know, how you entered the space to find a real poem in there, you pulling it from the news. But let's hear it first. This is a thermopolium. Okay. Thermopolium. Found in an earthenware vessel, remnants of a Pompeian street stand's last day stew. Fish, sheep meat, snails. Perhaps a meal delicious, tender, 
the archaeologist doesn't say. A person eats first for the joy of tasting, then for the joy of living to be once again hungry. A person tilts the head when they hear or see something new, as if change of angle could lead to a change of seeing, but eats with the head held upright, untilted, directly above the reliable throat, stomach, intestines, legs, feet. Eats with the life that expects to go on. Then something surprises, a recipe or the end of the world as you've known it. And you pause, mouth filled with fish, snails, and sheep meat. Tilt your head to listen one moment longer. Yeah, and that was uh, Thermopolium, another of the new poems from The Asking, the new and selected book by Jane Hirschfield. And I wanted to ask about this poem because it's, it's the one in the book that I know comes from a news story because I remember. And so I can see the initial impetus of the poem, you know, when that news came out. And it was intriguing. We got a lot of poems about that at Rattle, too. And, and so, so my question is, um, at one point, do you know a poem is actually there? Like, what is your writing process like where you know that there's something lurking beneath the surface that's worth exploring? Do you, uh, is it immediately like you, you sense that itch feeling and you have to go scratch it and search? Or do you sort of dig around with words and then and then sometimes it finds something and sometimes you don't? Is it more like, you know, archaeology? Or is it more like, um, I don't know, homing in on something? Well, for me... You know, it was indeed an irresistible story. And I know um, Dorian Locks also has a fabulous and entirely different poem on it. Um, but for me, oddly, the thing that caught me was the implausible contents of the, you know, 2,000-year-old stew bowl. <laughs> and also, of course, that they could know those contents. And I just had this instantaneous kinesthetic feeling, ah, there's a poem in here somewhere. Um, I've had that. Lots of my poems come from news stories, some identified a bit, some not identified. Years and years ago in a dentist's office, I read a National Geographic story about jade, and it had the names of jade in it. And I just tore out the page because I knew someday those names of Jade were going to be needed for a poem. And I think it took two years before I finally needed them, but I'd been carrying them around. So I had them. Um, so I have this visceral sense there's something in here. And I start by listening. Um, for me, the process of writing a poem is very much a process of asking the inner voice, which is halfway to the part of the mind which gives us dreams. You know, we don't control the unconscious. It chooses what it's going to give us. And so I allow that inner voice to begin to speak, and it will speak with a music, and it somehow knows where it's going before I, the conscious Jane, knows where things are going. And so I just begin writing. And then at a certain point, the part of me that knows the work I want poems to do will come in and say, you know, where, what, how, and it will give me the discovery. And I didn't know what the discovery of this poem was going to be until at least, you know, 
maybe until the first draft was done and I found that it was there. Um, it has to do, you know, the surprise goes back to those original, you know, the experience of the original ingredients, but the business of the tilted head, the upright head, why do we eat? A person eats first for the joy of eating, then for the joy of living to be once again hungry. I think that's the emotional heart of the poem. The poem is basically, as I think why this story appealed to so many people, you know, Pompeii is about the sudden unexpected end of life with no preparation and no chance to take it in. And this poem, as probably is true of many, many of the others, is a poem basically saying, oh, I just love being alive. Isn't it fantastic? to be alive. Yeah, even with uh, what we know is coming, you know, whether, you know, we all know it's coming at some point, whether it's coming uh, the next moment like it does here. Or, um... To live one moment longer. Mm -hmm. you know? yeah. I feel that more and more. So these new poems are coming from, you know, a different stage of my life than the early poems did. And it's something that has come up in me more and more in the last couple of years is this simple sense of what a gift it is to be breathing, to be listening, to be seeing, to be walking. Our lives are so brief, mm -hmm. and this world, even as it now is with all of its catastrophic news and all of its damage, um, it is beautiful. And it seems to me that that's what we really need at this moment. I think there's a kind of a gratitude crisis. You know, the news and the what we ex were exposed to is so full of negativity because of negativity bias and the way that spreads through social media, and for you know you know media that relies on advertising, we have to get you know listeners and eyeballs, and that means spread the worst news stories possible. And so we're sort of left with this feeling that everything is terrible and awful, and we forget that there's so much to be grateful for too. I think it's a really common problem that causes so much anxiety and, and depression in, in, you know, in the world today. And so having, you know, poetry that notices and appreciates is something that's really valuable. Well, I think it's one of the, you know, not terribly hidden secrets of poetry is the reason that we can bear to read poems about grief, about death, about loss, about sorrow, about disaster and illness is because the words of the poems carry also the news of beauty. The poem is beautiful. The language has discovery of radiance in it. And that is the balm that allows us to take in the pain and not just turn away from it. You know, if you hear a loud siren going by, you cover your ears. If you hear a church bell ringing in an Italian village to announce that there's a fire in the hills, you listen, you pay attention. Um, it's it just, you're able to take it in. Yeah, and it, there's sort of two things that come up reading your work in my mind, which is um, the, the word yes, I think, and, and saying yes to the world, and then and then we being collective too, and not just I. Um, but about the yes, there in the interview with Riley you did way back in 2006 with Alan uh, Fox, you brought up uh, the Cavafy poem 
um, the great yes and the great no, which is just a beautiful moment. I think of that all the time because it's just so true. Um, I, I pulled it up so I could read it really quick, but this is, um, it's Che uh, Fece Il Gran Refuto, which is um, uh, the line from, from Dante. But it's, uh, for some people, the day comes when they have to declare the great yes or the great no. It's clear at once who has the yes ready within him. In saying it, he goes from honor to honor, strong in his conviction. He who refuses does not repent. Asked again, he'd still say no. Yet that no, the right no, drags him down all his life. And that idea of there being the great yes and the great no, um, it, it strikes me, like, thinking about that, that, that that's what poetry is really doing. It is saying yes to things, even suffering. You know, we record our suffering in poems and share it. And, and embrace it. And then everything else is swirling around that too. But it's saying yes to this life and, and the humanity that we have inside. Is that the, would you say that's the central thing to what you're trying to do is to say yes to the world with your poems? Yes. Um, I think you, you have brought up, I, I still think of the Kavafi poem all of the time. It is a lifetime companion for me. And when I've been giving readings from this poem, one of the runs of poems that I give is here are poems which are doing the work of finding out how to say yes to the difficult. Because that's not a one-time marriage. You can't just decide to do it because something different difficult is going to come around the corner the next day or the next year and require you once again to find what Robert Frost so poignantly called the momentary stay against confusion. Mm -hmm. And I think poems are a way to renew our vow with existence. They are, by their nature, antidotes to despair and um, navigations that bring you from depression to a more embracing feeling about your life. You know, for me, that is lifelong, a great deal of the work they have done. Mm -hmm. and, and it seems to me, I mean, a lot of times you hear the complaint about contemporary poetry, that there's so much, you know, negative, so much suffering, so much pain that we're expressing in the poems. But, but there's a way that that that's healing and, and joyful too, which is sort of, you know, people who don't read a lot of poetry don't understand that, that you get that feeling from it, that, that that connection between each other, the knowledge that other people are going through similar things too, is actually healing, positive feeling too. Do you ever have trouble communicating that to, to people? Do you, do you, how do you think of the audience for your poems, I guess is what I'm thinking about. Like, do you think of, of um, how they're going to be received and by who and, and how, what, people are going to be gained out of them? Or are they sort of artifacts of your your internal analysis and exploration of life? And then however, you know, the chips fall where they may. Do you think about that at all? Well, I'm the first audience because I'm the one who's trying to discover what the poem has to say. Once I have that working first draft and I know there's a poem there, I do give some thought to the fact that, well, if someone who isn't, isn't me reads this, what will the words on the page carry to them? Will it carry them enough so that they can have, if not the same discovery, then some similar experience? And I do try as much as one can to read the poems over as a, as a craft matter, as if I hadn't written it and as if I could see what it was if I weren't me. 
And that's one of the sides of revision. The other side of revision is to step back inside the poem and ask if I've truly explored what needed exploring, said what I needed to say, said anything I didn't believe, which must be cut. Um, but yeah, it's, it is, it is, I, I, after you begin to be published irregularly, you start to feel a responsibility to your readers. I certainly don't imagine who they are. They get to choose. Somebody can choose to read me or not choose to read me. Um, I'm not. I'm. I'm not trying to uh, uh, go out and and preach the gospel of poetry unless it happens organically. I am very interested in reaching people who are not necessarily inside the uh, corral of of already love poetry. I love it when my work goes out in ways which reach beyond that and in places which reach beyond that. So especially the recent work with scientists has been a great pleasure. But it just feels to me that if I became overly concerned with audience, I would lose my soul. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can't be overly concerned with audience. That the poems have done work for people and that I have heard this back for, you know, at least 20 years now um, after a poem that I wrote in response to 9-11 uh, circulated rather broadly. And then three years later, um, we will get to this poem. It's on your list. Um, three years later, somebody sent me an email and said, ah, I loved your I mean, it sounds trite, but it wasn't trite, and I'm saying it badly. He said, "I your 9-11 poem meant so much to me. I can't wait to see what you write about the Indonesian tsunami. Oh, wow. And I was totally startled. And I thought, I can't write a poem about the Indonesian tsunami. And I said, you know, it's one is a natural disaster and the other was made by us humans and was, you know, absolutely undoing and devastating. And I had to find out what I felt in response to it. And then thinking about why I couldn't write a poem about the Christmas tsunami, I ended up writing one, which I know is on your list. And you don't even know which poem I'm talking about. No, it's those who cannot act. Oh, okay. Hmm. You know, and we could skip to that now if you like. Yeah, that's it. That's one of actually. It's one of my favorite poems we've ever published. It's such a surprising um, place the poem goes. I guess that's what we'll say now. Um, but yeah, let's hear that. Okay. So since I've already given, you know, people come to poetry readings and Zooms and things to hear the gossip. You get to hear the background that isn't necessarily said in the poem. And that is how this poem came to be written was, you know, the email saying, can't wait for your poem. And I'm thinking, can't write that poem. Where's the poem? And I realized that for me, there was a poem and it had to do with the innocent bystanders. Yeah. It had to do with people whose deaths nobody is, you know, it's not the subject of the Greek tragedy. It is It is just they died. Um, so they aren't the protagonists. So it began also, you know, first I kind of had figured out what was, what was there to be said about a natural disaster. And then I remembered or came across the quote from Aeschylus with which the poem starts. So the title, Those Who Cannot Act. Those who act will suffer, suffer into truth. 
What Aeschylus omitted, those who cannot act will suffer too. The sister banished into exile, the unnamed dog soon killed. Even the bystanders vanish, one by one, peripheral, in pain, unnoticed, while. So the poem breaks off grammatically. There's no period at its end. Um, it has some rhyme to it. Uh, it's, it's hidden rhyme, but it's in there. Um, while and exile. Mm -hmm. um, it's a poem of music, and it's a poem of acknowledging the bystander. And I think especially today with, you know, both the wars in Ukraine and uh, in between Israel and Gaza, um, it is a day when so many people who never chose to be in those situations are caught in the middle of a pure hell realm. And they can't do anything heroic. Mm -hmm. It wasn't their fault. It wasn't their decision. And yet they need to be seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what I love about that poem, too, is it makes the reader into someone who cannot act. We're bystanders to the poem who are, um, you know, unable to finish the poem. And I think uh, the people who are listening who didn't get to, to watch the look at the poem on screen as you were reading, have you had the best experience wondering if the uh, sound had just cut out or not, but the poem actually ends there in a way that we can't change, so we can't act on that. I think it's a, just a wonderful way to end that poem. Did you think of that? Was that in a revision, or did that come to you all in one, that ending? Was that something that you knew you wanted to do, or how did you get to that point? I certainly didn't know I wanted to do it. Um, I I think I, I it was written too long ago for me to recall whether you know, it's almost 20 year old poem, whether this was a revision decision or simply what happened. Um, but I know, I think this might be the first poem I did this in the broken off grammar as lives were broken off in that tsunami, mm -hmm. just unfinished sentences. And it felt to me so powerful for me that I have done it in a few poems since. I try very, very hard not to overuse it. Mm -hmm. It could become a tick. It could become, oh, I know this works. That would be um, an ethical error mm -hmm. to go, oh, look, look at this trick I discovered. It's not a trick. It was the actual emotion mirroring event. And so... I notice every time I use it, and I will only use it if it is absolutely genuinely felt. Yeah, well, it's such a powerful effect it creates in that little poem. It's really, it's one of my favorite poems. Um, Thank you. Uh, this, this is a new and selected book, and so part of the process was selecting poems. And, uh, and I haven't actually read your first book, um, Alea. And, uh, and so, Nobody has. <laughs> so it was really interesting to read uh, some poems from there, which you have at the, you know, the second section of the book. And I love this poem, Everything That Is Not You, which is a simple poem on page 41. But it, uh, it, it's another one I was talking about before, how you know, that there's such a consistency in the engagement with the world in your work throughout this whole span of years in these books. And this is a great example. If this poem was in a later 
section of the, of the book, you know, one of the later books, I would be completely unsurprised um, mm. because it deals with the same, um, you know, from the same sort of ethical perspective and, and philosophical and spiritual perspective um, as everything else. And, and it's just a beautiful poem that it's surprising to me that you could have written it that long ago. Uh, do you want to read that one? I, I, first, I'm going to say you are just a wonderful reader. Thank you. <laughs> Everything that is not you. One gain, one loss, whatever is said, and the light streaming in through Venetian blinds. As this room could be any room, these words, any words. The impossible closes around like a smooth lake on an early morning swim. Everything that is not you. Yeah, and that is such a beautiful metaphor. Everything that is not you. That metaphor, um, the impossible closes around like a smooth lake on an early morning swim. Everything that is not you. And it's that, that same sort of concept we were talking about before of, you know, writing a poem or playing baseball or whatever. Get that sense of, of actually being completely connected with the world. Like it's one thing and not these things carved up separately. I mean, it's such a Buddhist view of the world, but then the feeling of it, like the water on a calm lake slipping around you, um, you know, and, and there's a way, it makes me think too of the way that like, it's impossible to be wet, you know, oh. because, oh, <laughs> yes. because there's a, you know, there's always a gap between the water and you, even if it's your, mm. you know, it's the charge that your skin feels and not the water itself, you know? And so, um, you know, there's something about that. There's something about the disconnect, but then the, the, the moments that you can feel that connection, that oneness are so important and so special. Um, can you speak a little bit about that, about, about your spiritual practice and your sense of what, um, what the world really is, sort of beyond our carving it up and naming it, if you, if you follow what I mean? Uh, the world is, we have our human view of existence because we are inside this particular choice that evolution made. Um, that doesn't sound very spiritual, but it's in complete accord with my spiritual sense of things and with you know Zen practice as I understand it, which is not as some people still erroneously have the idea. Zen practice is not about the erasure of self. It is not about nihilism. It is not about emptiness in some shallow way of nothing matters or nothing is meaningful. It is about both treasuring this particular manifestation of existence from, you know, an ant on a newspaper in your house to the redwoods that I can hike over a ridge and visit to the extinct birds and fishes through all time, through all space, particularity is the expression of this very moment. And Zen has a great allegiance to this very moment. What it does not do is reify that moment into something fixed, into something that you can, you know, wrap up, tie in a string and hide in a drawer and keep. Uh, one of the things I said a long time ago, which for a while was the most repeated thing I've ever said, and it wasn't from a poem, was that all Buddhism can be um, unfolded from seven words. Everything changes. Everything is connected. Pay attention. Hmm. 
And, you know, there are things which aren't explicitly said, but if you truly feel that you are connected to everything else in existence, you will find compassion. You will find through that sense of interdependence and interconnection, your care for others equal to yourself. And, you know, I'm quite sure if somebody aimed a gun at me, I would try to run um, because that also is in me as a human being, as a, as a member of a species with a certain amount of self-protection built into our psyches and our brain stems and our amygdala. But what practice adds and what poetry itself adds is an enormous empathy and feeling of non-discontinuity, if it makes sense to say it that way, that, that really our lives are inseparable from all lives. And when you feel that, Another, you know, sort of old trope about Buddhism was that, you know, if you sit in a monastery, you're you're not helping anybody. Um, but I think it leads to a greater sense of engagement and a greater wish to help the world be more tender and less cruel mm -hmm. for all of us. A, a great sense of, you know, to, Zen practice might sometimes be described in as you know a sense of equanimity or the perfection of things as they are and you can have both the sense of the perfection of things as they are which is referred to in one of the other of the of the new poems and at the same time an absolute vow to lessen the suffering of other beings and your own being yeah. And it, it strikes me too. Um, you know, I mentioned that the we is so central to your poetry. And what I mean by that is that that sense of, of moving from the I to the we, which if you look at all religions, you know, there's this movement from the self-centered, this, this person-centered focus to the collective-centered focus from the, from the I to the we. And, and seeing that there really is this connection between everything is really what matters fundamentally at its heart. And if you pay attention, it's true. I think that's the great thing about Buddhism is that if you, if you sit and actually notice and actually explore and, and learn about the world, you see the connections between everything. I mean, there's a way that, strangely enough, it's almost like life like like it, it, from the start hides that connection you know from the first heterotroph that was surrounded by a membrane you know it was like isolating itself and then we were a clump of cells getting more and more isolated but the whole time being completely connected and not existing without that semi-permeable membrane that moves things in and out and and so everything is connected right back from the dawn of time and you know you know all our, through our dna we're all you know we're all relatives and and the yeah. earth is one system and we're all part of it. And and just seeing that changes the way you think about the world. And our blood is salty because we began in the sea. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that you mention, you know, the we, because pronouns really matter to me. And uh, a poem even earlier than the earliest one in this book. So the earliest poem in the book was written when I was 18. And a poem that I wrote when I was 17, which was certainly not good enough to put in the book, but it had one line that I've always remembered, which was, to define the meaning of we is to find a life. 
And so I was interested, even at 17, with this ever-expanding we. And I've been, you know, thinking about that recently still and talking about it still. And at this point, what I've begun to say is, I am willing to limit my we to the top of the atmosphere surrounding this planet. You know, it's like, I'll take Earth being as an identity. Um, (laughs) But beyond that, without losing the particular histories, without losing place and life and language and background and culture and all of those things, it just seems to me that any time we human beings draw a line between us and them, they're suffering. Mm -hmm. They're suffering. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it does, no important, you know, now as in always, but but especially now too. Um, yeah. I want to make sure we read enough poems. I just love talking to you, Jan, kind of taking advantage of it a little too much. I want to hear some more poems too. Uh, maybe a poem would be appropriate is uh, Three Foxes uh, by the Edge of the Field at Twilight uh, right now. From uh, This is from The Lives of the Heart, one of the sort of 90s books. Um, do you want to read that? Sure. Okay. Three Foxes by the Edge of the Field at Twilight. One ran, her nose to the ground, a rusty shadow, neither hunting nor playing. One stood, sat, lay down, stood again. One never moved, except to turn her head a little as we walked. Finally, we drew too close, and they vanished. The woods took them back as if they had never been. I wish I had thought to put my face to the grass. But we kept walking, speaking as strangers do when becoming friends. There is more and more I tell no one, strangers nor loves. This slips into the heart without hurry, as if it had never been. And yet among the trees something has changed. Something looks back from the trees and knows me for who I am. And that was, uh, once again, Three Foxes by the Edge of the Field at Twilight. And we're reading poems from uh, The Asking, new and selected poems by Jane Hirschfield, the beautiful new collection that's just out. Um, and and that, that poem strikes me, I mean, you're you know, known as a poet of the environment, you know, concern for the world and, um, and the ecosystem. Um, and, and that's a poem that there's a sense of, because it's the, the looking back at you, it's almost challenging you to do something about what's going on with the world. Um, can you speak a little bit about that, about how you feel called, maybe, to speak on behalf of the voiceless planet, I guess you could say? Mostly all I can say is, yes, I do feel called. I do feel that part of the job of the part of me which is drawn to art making, to poem as response, is to hear what's not ordinarily heard by my ego mind, you know, caught up in the tasks of the day, um, to, to listen more broadly and then to bring forward what I hear or see or feel. I think all art does this. Art is not interesting if it merely were to reproduce the mainstream account of things, what have we learned? If art is a way to see the world differently and feel the world differently, it must be 
in part because we step outside of the simplest declarative relationship with the world and we listen mm -hmm. and we hear the calls of it. There is, um, to get a little Buddhist technical with you, uh, there is a uh, Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara in Sanskrit, uh, Kuan Yin in Japanese, Canon in, in Chinese. Um, and the translation of that name, Avalokiteshvara, is the one who hears the cries of the world mm -hmm. and comes. And I think this is an inevitable response. If we are not getting in the way of our own hearts, we will hear the cries of the world and come. Mm -hmm. And this sense of witness is one way you calibrate your own ethical behavior in the world, to not see always from your own most self-centered point of view, but to see from the point of view of the whole. And am I causing more damage or am I bringing a little sustenance, a little aid to this world? Yeah. Um, well, this is the point I should say, if anybody has any questions for Jane, uh, leave them in the chat windows, either on Facebook or YouTube. I'll try to pass them along. Um, already, um, Ellen Austin Lee mentions, uh, she says, I so admire Jane's restraint, how much space she leaves for the reader to fill in. And um, I think that plays well into the next poem that I want to read, which is Silence, um, an essay. Uh, but... But can you talk a little bit about, either before or after the, at that poem, about your, your sense of silence within a poem and how important that is? So I think sometimes of the analogy of what I guess is now an old-fashioned technology, the spark plug, if there isn't a gap between the two poles, there's no room for the ignition of the spark. Um, Another way to talk about this is I can't totally complete the poem because the poem completes itself in me as its writer and in anyone who reads it. The full experience of the poem is always beyond the periphery of the words. It has to do with what we bring um, our own full lives, our understandings, our history as, you know, shared human beings, mammals, living creatures on this earth. We understand every image. We understand a mountain because we've walked on a mountain and we've seen a mountain and we know what steepness is. Silence in a poem is trust of that response taking place without being dictated. And if it were being dictated, it wouldn't be the same response. Um, I often, when I, when I teach workshops, will say, you know, the reader understands either more or less than you think they do at any given moment. Your job is to figure out which. <laughs> um, but I love leaving the space for the completion of the poem to happen in the person. And of course, I have had a lifelong relationship with Japanese poetry, and that is at the core of every Japanese poem, whether haiku or the earlier form tanka, an image is given, another image is given, or a time of year or something. And between those two, you must bring your entire understanding of the natural world and of human lives and hearts and minds 
or the poem will be inert and meaningless and somebody will say, what, is, what does this matter? But if you are alert to filling in the silence, and there's always two parts, even in a haiku, it's, it's never just one thing, it's always two. And in the silence between them is the answer to the question that hasn't even been asked us a question. And yet we feel all poems, when we read any poem, we are entering it with the knowledge that a certain kind of rhetorical expectation of transformation, of curative healing, of perplexity transformed to a better perplexity, something that is the work of art. Mm -hmm. There's no reason to turn to art except because it's offering us something that will change us. And if I'm the same person after writing or reading a poem as I was before it, then that work of art has not been effective for me. Yeah, and that might be called The Asking, I guess you could say, right? Oh. So that's a perfect title for this book. <laughs> so you want the poem now, yeah, I let's guess? Yeah, let's hear the there. poem. I have odes to silence all over my work. They're all over my poems. They're in in the essay books. I just have paragraphs praising silence. Um, I have that earlier line that we heard about there's more and more I tell no one. That leads right into this poem, um, or at least right into the idea of silence. So silence and essay. No one wants to buy you or gossip about you or play your unlabeled, unlined vinyl LP. How quickly you're consigned to the bin-labeled boredom. How untradeable, how unfollowed down a dark street. Silence cannot be taught and refuses all invitations. Cupped in one open hand, it feels weightless. With time, though, silence starts to grow heavy to silently weep. But it's hard to be silent while weeping. The silence leaves. The empty hand without it trembles a little. Einstein called time what stops everything from happening at once. Silence stops everything from shouting at once. At 5.18 here every morning, one loud bird complains about too much silence. The day is here, the day is here, it announces. No other birds join it, so it goes back to being quiet. Hearing it helps me. Each morning I'm glad of silence, but also glad of the bird that woke me so I can be happy a moment right alongside it, knowing soon I'll again not be awake. Silence is generous that way, also is poor, and worth no, it's worth nothing until you'd give anything for some. Yeah, that is Silence, an essay from uh, The Asking by Jane Hirschfeld, one of the new poems from the new and selected volume. And uh, can you talk a little bit about that form? I don't know if the form is the right word, it's a type of poem an essay. Uh, and it was something that you, you developed yourself. How did that come to be? And, and what do you, how do you think of it? So I stumbled into it because I had started writing poems in a certain voice. And then one of them was even more in that voice, which was a different sound and a different way of proceeding than anything I'd been doing before. And I thought 
that the reader might need a little help catching on to the tone. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I could have called the first one that I ever wrote, I could have called it, they're not unlike poems which have the, you know, sub-label a meditation. But for me, meditation has such a particular meaning that it's not something I wanted to attach to to my poems. And I hunted around to think, well, what is it then? What should I call it? Well, the word assay really struck me when I thought about it, because it has two different um, roots into 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 this this use. One is the it is comes from the French word assayer to try, which is the mother word of our form, the essay. And my poems that I call essays are a little bit essay-like. They're a little more prosy in their music. They think in the speculative way that essays do. But I also had been living for you know quite some years then with a molecular biophysicist and issues of science and nature would arrive at the house. And on the back covers were ads for very expensive assaying machines. And you know what an assaying machine does in in a laboratory is it takes a subject, it takes a substance, and it disassembles it to see how much of this and how much of that are in it. So there's also, of course, the assayer's office in in you know gold rush country. You'd take in your rock, and the person would say, "Okay, there's this much gold in it." And I loved the idea of taking subjects and thinking about them not with the breakdown of materials of physical science, but with the breakdown of materials of the imagination, approaching the same thought from different directions of of imagination and questioning. And it just, the first poem I thought I was just calling that one poem that, and what I discovered over time was it felt like a really usable tool. And so I kept picking it up and doing it again. And and so, you know, uh, many of them are, the first ones are, are all in after, but I think every book since has a poem or or more that calls itself an essay. It's, it's a voice and it's, you know, voice is a tool for discovering meaning through a different pathway. A sonnet produces meaning in one way, a haiku or tanka produces meaning in another way, a sestina or villanelle produces meaning in another way. And for me, the feel of an assay, it's like a gated horse. It's a different way of moving through the world to make a different kind of discovery or to make it available in a different way. Yeah, I just love to hear you describe that. I think it was one of the early things I loved uh, that you do with poetry, because I've always felt, and when I first came across it, I was a science major working in an RNA lab doing essays of mRNA. And um, and so I've always thought of poetry as a different kind of scientific exploration. It's a kind of discovery, a kind of meaning-making and sense-making about the world that doesn't use the scientific method, but uses something sort of deeper and more holistic and intuitive or something like that, but but just as much a tool for understanding. And so thinking of poems as essays is, is, uh, is really fascinating to me. I love that concept. Um, do you want to read another one so people can get another sense of the form now that we've talked about it, maybe to judgment? Sure. Um... So warning to listeners, this poem is a little longer and it's a little complicated, um, but I think it's perfectly understandable, (laughs) I hope. (laughs) 
to judgment and assay. You change a life as eating an artichoke changes the taste of whatever is eaten after. Yet, oh, you, I should say, you know, that's judgment. Who's the you? This is an ode as well as an assay. I'll start it over. To judgment and assay. You change a life as eating an artichoke changes the taste of whatever is eaten after. Yet you are not an artichoke, not a piano or cat, not objectively present at all. And what of you a cat possesses is essential but narrow to know if the distance between two things can be leapt. The piano, that good servant, has none of you in her at all. She lends herself to what asks. This has been my ambition as well. Yet a person who has you is like an iron spigot whose water comes from far-off mountain springs. Inexhaustible, your confident pronouncements flow, coldly delicious. For if judgment hurts the teeth, it doesn't mind. Not judgment. Teeth pass. Pain passes. Judgment decrees what remains. The serene judgments of evolution or the judgment of a boy king entering Persia. Burn it, he says, and it burns. And if a small tear swells the corner of one eye, it is only the smoke. It is no more to him than a beetle fleeing the flames of the village with her six-legged children. The biologist Haldane, in one of his tenderer moments, judged beetles especially loved by God because he had made so many. For judgment can be tender. I have seen you carry a fate to its end as softly as a retriever carries the quail. Yet however much I admire you at such moments, I cannot love you. You are too much in me, weighing without pity your own worth. When I have erased you from me entirely, disrobed of your measuring adjectives, stripped from my shoulders and hips each of your nouns, when the world is horsefly, coal barge, and dawn the color of winter butter, not beautiful, not cold, only the color of butter, then perhaps I will love you, helpless to not, as a newborn wolf is helpless, no choice but hunt the wolf milk, find it sweet. And that was to judgment, an essay from, um, I believe it was from After originally, and that we're reading poems from The Asking by Jane Hirschfield. And I think that's a great example of a poem where I can see, you know, because you add so much, you know, come from so many angles, I can see how that poem can come to be over the course of time and work through revision because there's so many different ways you approach a subject. And one of the things that's interesting, I've always had trouble revising myself. It feels like you can't step in the same river twice. And so like, once you're out of the poem, how do you get back in is always a problem. And I saw one time you said something about how um, uh, by revising my poems, I was revising myself. And you realize that you had that sense of, of being able to change things through changing your poems. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that before we go, about how, how the process of revision becomes part of the spiritual practice too? 
Yeah, so so that is a reference to, um, I think I had the idea independently first, but then I discovered uh, this amazing quatrain by Yeats. It has no title. Um, it's just stuck somewhere in one of his collected poems. Uh, and what he wrote was, my friends who say it, who say I do it wrong whenever I revise my song, not know what is at stake. It is myself that I remake. Mm-hmm. And it's just marvelous and very true yeah. that in fact it's it's a great way to work on yourself because you can look objectively at something and go, oh, that's awfully narcissistic. <laughs> And when you fix the poem, I'm quite sure you are also, you know, administering a little anti-narcissistic medicine to your to your own heart, mind, and psyche. Um, so yeah, it's uh, I changed my relationship to revision radically the year I spent co-translating the work of the two foremost Japanese women classical poets because Japanese and English are so very different grammatically that you can try seven rather different versions and they're all equally valid and equally accurate. There are things left out of Japanese that you have to decide in English, like a grammatical voice. And that year of that work, which was 1985, it turned me from someone who had a difficult relationship to revision to someone who realized I don't have to worry. I can experiment and I will find out. You know, you don't lose your first draft. It's it's right there on the piece of paper. Mm-hmm. You can't lose the original Japanese poem. Its greatness will not be damaged by anything I do with it. Um, and so you learn, oh, what if I tried a different verb tense? What if I tried third-person grammar or second-person grammar? And something steps forward and more power is gained. And suddenly, revising became not fraught, but a joy. Because if I can make a line better when I'm revising a poem, it's as deep a happiness as writing a good line in the first place yeah. for for me. Um, but, you know, reading this poem, I realized as I went along how many of the things that we've been talking about are in it. You know, the um, the disappearance of self is, is in it. And, and uh, you know, the feeling of... Uh, it is, for me, a poem with a great deal of very specific... Zen practice in it because there is a famous, famous teaching in Zen which says the perfect way is not difficult, only give up picking and choosing. <laughs> and you know, lovely statement, but we human beings are always picking and choosing, including when we are writing and revising our poems, but even when we're deciding what we're going to have for dinner. And so I was really trying to work out my relationship to this idea, I do not like myself when I am judgmental. I do not like myself when I am opinionated. Um, And yet, if we're going to live in these bodies in this world, we are always making judges, judgments, we are always having opinions. And so that was the problem I wanted to solve for myself in working my way through this poem. And I actually got there. 
because what the poem is basically saying at its very end is, you know, when the world is horsefly, coal barge, and dawn the color of winter butter, not beautiful, not cold, those are opinions, only the color of butter, then perhaps I will love you, helpless to not, as a newborn wolf is helpless, no choice but hunt the wolf milk, find it sweet. So I step back into judgment, you know, sweet, there you have it. It's just like beautiful and cold. And the poem is basically working my way through, okay, if I am willing to surrender judgment, then I can have it again. Hmm. As long as it's not a fixity. Yeah, as, as long, long as it's not as always you. open to question. Yeah. Yeah, Deb Tannenbaum says, I've noticed little meanness in some of my poems. And by noticing and changing it, it changes me, which is a great way to put it, too. Uh, that's a great explanation. You know, I remember hearing you say that in trying to um, understand and embrace it. And now I think I do. So I'm glad I, you know, stretched. I'm sorry for keeping you longer than I said, but uh, I got to learn about that. So thanks so much. Um, I should say, too, if you're watching the show and enjoying it, please do click the like button. Uh, and wherever you're watching, there's hundreds of people literally watching between the three platforms. Uh, if you could click the like button, that helps more people even see it. Um, so let's finish up. I'll let you go uh, with this uh, last poem is Let Them Not Stay. And um, it's one of the poems that you're most well known for. It kind of went viral um, at the Academy of American Poets um, poem of a day thing. Um, and it really is a beautiful poem that that touches on so much of what poetry, you know, is trying to do, you know, by embodying what poetry is trying to do. Um, can you explain a little bit how the, this poem came to be and how it came to be published and, and so popular and then read it? Yeah. Um, so I actually wrote the poem in 2014, and I wrote it with the crisis of the biosphere completely in mind. And I it imagines the future looking back at us in this pivotal moment and knowing whether what we did created a viable world or did not create a viable world. So it's got a it's got a strange quality of of relationship to time in it. Um, but I wrote it, and then it's 2014. It was probably the first poem in my last book, Ledger, to be written. And then I felt I had to live up to it because it was so dire in its possibilities that I just felt, okay, I have to live up to this poem. I have to make it, do my best to make this poem seem incomprehensible 150 years from now. Yeah. I want someone to stumble over it 150 years from now and say, why was she so worried? But I think the only way we get there is by exactly being so worried. When I wrote it, I felt like it did something. And I did not send it out anywhere. I felt like this is a poem that has work to do, and I'm going to wait for it to be able to do that work. I'm not just going to send it somewhere. And in late 2016, I was asked by the Academy of American Poets if I could give them a poem for their New Year's Day, Poem -a Day. And I answered, I don't think I have a poem for New Year's Poem -a Day, but I think I have a poem which you might be interested in running 
on the inauguration day of the then incoming president. So we're talking 2017 now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, you know, you decide, but I, th- I think it might be meaningful on that day. Um, and 15 minutes later, they emailed me back and said, oh, yeah, we've all looked at it. Absolutely, we're going to run it. So when it was published, it was published not in the context of the environment and the biosphere, but in the context of politics. And as I've been reading this, as I've been doing events for this new book, uh, one woman came up to me and said she was absolutely sure it was about another crisis entirely. So now I've begun to feel that uh, perhaps it's an all-purpose crisis poem. Um, But I began after writing this to become a much more engaged activist in many, many ways. And, you know, its first virality was as a political poem, but now more and more, you know, email, you know, even yesterday from a composer, um, it is stepping forward as a kind of anthem for the environmental movement. And I am moved and grateful that I've written something that might serve. So... Let them not say. Let them not say we did not see it. We saw. Let them not say we did not hear it. We heard. Let them not say they did not taste it. We ate. We trembled. Let them not say it was not spoken, not written. We spoke. We witnessed with voices and hands. Let them not say they did nothing. We did not enough. Let them say, as they must say something, a kerosene beauty, it burned. Let them say we warmed ourselves by it, read by its light, praised, and it burned. Yeah, that is such a beautiful poem, Let Them Not Say. And really, you know, for any kind of... of you know, problem that we're dealing with and, and you know, we're, we only have so much power to change anything. And, and that's something that we have to grapple with as human beings that we can't change the world. And so, you know, that's a poem that, that addresses that in, in such a beautiful way. And it's no wonder it spread around so widely. Um, Jane, thanks so much for, for being a guest today. It's just been wonderful talking to you as, as much as I'd hoped. Um, I got to learn myself and um, it's just beautiful talking to you. I really appreciate it. Um, and thanks for being here. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good night. And that was Jane Hirschfield. Um, And once again, you can find Jane Hirschfield's book um, uh, at penguinrandomhouse.com. Penguinrandomhouse.com. The asking. Find the link in the show notes to the asking. And and I hope everybody picks up a copy because it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Now, we're going to go ahead and move on to the open lines. And... um, how that works, I'm going to put this up on screen so you can see. Um, email your poem first to open mic, that's openmic at rattle.com. Then find the Zoom link in the chat windows on Facebook or YouTube. So email me the poem so I can show it like we were showing poems from the book. I'll use my webcam instead of my document cam. But uh, email me the poem and then join on the Zoom and I will provide the links. You can share anything you'd like. You can share prompt poems. You can share poets respond type poems about current events. You can share anything you've written recently, something you published recently, 
anything that you would like, please feel free to share it. And, um, okay. <laughs> Sorry. I will share the link in just a second, but we'll be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. And like I said, you can share any poems you'd like on the open lines. Um, but we do like to do our prompt poems. And the prompt for this week was to write a poem set in the first place you ever worked. And uh, so Katie Dozier's here, our prompt poems editor, to talk about that. And uh, that was inspired, of course, by um, last week's guest, uh, Arthur Russell, uh, his book at the car wash. Hey, hey Katie, how you doing? I'm doing great. I have to interrupt you to compliment the interview because it was amazing and I was so inspired. I know everybody's going to be complimenting you all night, but I had to. I'm sorry. All right. Well, I mean, Jane is really, I mean, her, those two books of essays, I think, are two of the best essays on poetry ever written or two books of essays or books of prose on poetry. And then her poems are just so profound and thoughtful. And, you know, the silence kind of swirls around each one. It's really amazing. So it's really, I was so excited when, the funny thing is, too, she asked to be a guest. I, I was thinking, oh, next time she has a book, I should ask. And then she's the first person I heard from about having a book. So that was really cool, too. A little a little pat on the head for me uh, that she wanted to. Um, but, uh, yeah, so let's uh, talk about the prompt poem that we did this week. Um, what was yours and, um, how did you approach it? Okay. Well, spoiler alert when I'm going to say spoiler alert at the beginning of the poem, but it turned into a hyphen. It wanted to be a hyphen. Most of my poems these days tend to want to be, but, uh, it was fun because I, I hadn't, you know, really pictured this location for quite a few years. And so really going back into it, it's funny how much things can really go back if you just start writing about it, especially in a journalistic kind of way. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and so what was your, uh, what was your place um, that you, that you wrote about? The cafeteria at Florida state university. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, so that was your first job. Um, and was it, what was it like going back to that place in time? It was it was really interesting because subsequent to that, I actually went to culinary school later, so it didn't scar me too much, I suppose, with working around food for the first time like that. But it, it was interesting. It's, I've been back to visit FSU and like doesn't exist anymore. So occasionally you'll find reference to, I think this place was open for like two semesters or something. <laughs> <When DuPont's. laughs> well, uh, let's hear the poem. This is uh, now hiring in the summer. Well, I'll let you read the title. Occasionally you'll... <laughs> Yeah, otherwise, I was like, we can't both read this title. That's going to be the rest of the show. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now hiring in the Seminole Student Union, RFOC, Real Food on Campus. Spoiler alert, it was not real food on campus. It was chicken nuggets and cheeseburgers and French fries that strutted out of a Cisco truck as if they weren't already running late for class. Discarded pools of soft serve with neon sprinkles. Even the rainbows melted in their hangover. Ketchup squirted into smushed paper cups. Sensible salads on the side, now just discarded mush. I stacked the trays while hoping the other knolls would look away. Tried to remember to write about it all one day. Timestamp, waiting for you to clock in. Uh, that's great. Another excellent high bun. And I have to Thanks. confess, mine ended up being a high bun too. <laughs> I tried, <laughs> I saw that you had a high bun and I was like, okay, well, I won't write a high bun. And then I got to the end of the poem and it like, didn't feel like there was an ending and it, time was running out. And I thought, you know, I guess it's a high bun. <laughs> so, I uh, guess it is. <laughs> so I have a high bun too. Uh, mine is uh, similarly um, about... 
uh, my first job. And I, I've said before, my first job uh, was shoveling snow uh, at the apartment complex. And I used to think about the snowman a lot. Uh, but that's actually not true. That was the first job I got paid for. At this job, I got paid in Fresca soda and uh, sandwiches. <laughs> and it was, um, well, it was, uh, you'll see what the job was. I don't even know. We'll see. Here we go. This is the poem, though. This is, um, here we go. This is, the root of the word sin is to miss the target. How old was I, those weekends spent with a bottle of Windex and a rag, wiping fingerprints from the glass cases of the gun store my father partly owned? How many days spent dusting the islands of ammunition in between them? Each row was a dozen boxes, each box holding fifty bullets. The steel shelves sagged with their weight. They looked to me like packages of cigarettes, red and white and green. If there was ever a fire, my job was to run and not stop. Have you ever heard the phrase, hell of bullets? I imagine them raining down at the speed of sound, finding cover under a parked car. But still, I'd organize the racks of leather holsters, sort the stacks of target sheets, every kind of silhouette on cheap paper. Do you know what gun control means, my father would say, hitting your target. Sometimes we'd go to the range and shoot at bowling pins. The goal was to hit the neck so they'd shatter. Sometimes, when the store was empty, my father would shout down, and my job was to drop to my belly like a lizard, crawl to the closest hiding space, and wait, how many minutes, for his voice, and only his voice, to say, all clear. Deep in the woods, a flock of songbirds scatter at your feet. So that is the root of the word sin, is to miss the target. Uh, and yeah, my first job was um, wiping the display cases at a gun store. So there you go. I might have been like 10 or 12. I'm not sure how old I was then, but that was uh, Saturdays for a while. Yeah. Great poem. And I want to know how much Fresca you drink because I love Fresca. That is a throwback that we all need. It definitely is. <laughs> I I was, it was Fresca. one can of Fresca and a, and a Subway, half a six inch sub from the Subway shop next door. And that was my, uh, that was my pay. Well, I'll give you a two liter the next time we're together. Oh, wow. That'll, that'll be a real throwback. <laughs> okay. So we also have the prompt poem of the month. And um, the prompt poem of the month, uh, do you want to talk about, about what you chose and, and what the decision was like? So for everybody who's new to the Rattlecast, this is a relatively new feature. This is the second month we've picked one, but we're going to do this every month. And um, I don't know how many submissions were in, four or 500, something like that. It was a good amount. And uh, you yeah. had to pick one for the prompt poem of the month, Katie. And so I talk about that experience. And, yeah. It was really hard because you guys write amazing poems. So there was that. Um, you know, there were so many that uh, I read multiple times and really enjoyed and doing it. And I did end up picking a high bend that I think really, I love the way the interplay between the title and then the prose section and then the haiku. I thought that there were kind of the biggest leaps between each and that you really had to combine all of them. And that it's a great example of a high bend that, you know, the sum being so much bigger than the parts mathematically should add up to. So, Yeah. Yeah, this was a really wonderful hyphen. Um, let's see. And, uh, and I forgot to put it on the, on the internet, on the website before the show. So I'm going to read it from Submittable. Um, but we have the audio as well. And the poet, of course, uh, was Farah Ali, who lives in the UK and so couldn't be here. It's like 2 a.m. there. Um, but she was thrilled to have the poem of the month chosen. And uh, here she is reading it. It's, it's White Rabbit. And um, this is one of those times if you're watching on the Zoom, you'll have to like make sure your Zoom is muted and listen on the uh, on the regular stream because you won't be able to hear it otherwise. 
but this is, well, maybe you can hear it through my microphone. I don't know. We'll see. But this is a uh, white rabbit. Here we go. White rabbit, pre-dawn stars, apartment lights vanish, one by one. Late, I rush down the stairs. Distraction, tiredness, hunger, an error in muscle memory. Whatever the cause, I miscalculate the steps. My foot dangles, leather-clad toes seeking, yearning for something not there. My tongue flies to the roof of my mouth. A lurch of the stomach, giddy panic at the sensation of plummeting, airy milliseconds, then the jolt of impact as I land on concrete. Ears ringing, stunned and hurting, I get up, blinking stupidly, self-conscious even though I am alone. Brushing myself down, I wipe the tears, smooth down my hair, check the time, hobble away with a surge of adrenaline <laughs> and continue my day of underground trains and office buildings, glimpses of sky, jostling and noise. I want to tell someone, but do not. Back home, I take painkillers and lower my stiff body into the bathtub. The bruises fade, but the relief that the fall was not as far as it could have been, that at least this time the ground was there to catch me, lingers. Midnight moon, lost in the warren of city streets. Yeah, and so that was the poem of the month. That was White Rabbit, again, by uh, Farah Ali. Um, just a beautiful use of the hybans. So we are really loaded with hybans right now, Katie. <laughs> and that's how I like to be, so I'm very glad. <laughs> it is a really wonderful form. Um, and uh, do you, is there anything else you want to say about the experience of choosing the poem this month? Uh, I think we had more than ever um, from that. Um, but what was it like to, to pick one? And I think there were just a lot of great poems, weren't there? Yeah, it was really interesting. I kind of I did a first reading and then I I narrowed it down to about what ended up being about the top 10 percent. Um, and then those I read a few times each to try to to make sure I wanted to make sure I was being, uh, you know, really rational in my decision and be able to articulate. Another thing that I loved about Ferris poem is the interplay with how it starts with a haiku and then has prose and then has another haiku at the end. Um, it really allowed a big journey throughout. So it's something that I want to do more when I write my own hyphen too, even though I didn't do it this week, but I read, I wrote that one actually before I picked the hyphen. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a great example. And too, I think you saw reading the, uh, the haiku first always works. So that was a great haiku. And if it's a great haiku, then the prose uh, is worth reading too. I think that's a good, and it kind of rhymes. So it must be true. Uh, but that yeah. Was, <laughs> yeah, that was White I, Rabbit by Farah Ali. Uh-huh. I had that echoing when I was reading people's hybens, you know, your statement on if the haiku's good, the hybens good. And that was pretty universally true, too, which is why there were so many good hybens. Yeah. And why we encourage those as submissions, because it makes the reading process much quicker. <laughs> anyway, well, thanks, Katie. Thank you. Stick around for uh, what the, um, the prompt poem for next week is going to be, if you can. If not, but I'll announce it. We also have the poetry space that we do, uh, we should mention. And uh, what is the topic? That is on Thursdays. We do it on Twitter, uh, or X as it's also known, or now known, or whatever. And uh, so you can find it either by following Katie underscore Dozier or me uh, at Timothy Green. Uh, we'll find it where we post it, but we talk for an hour about some topic. And what is the topic this week? We're going to be talking about bad poems. Is there such a thing? Is there such a thing as a bad poem? If you listen closely <laughs> to the Jane Hirschfield interview, you might 
understand what my uh, perspective is, but we'll see what, uh, what, uh, what everybody thinks about it. And, and we'll try to find some of the worst examples of our own poems. Maybe will be fun. Also, maybe the worst celebrity poems might be fun to look at too. Uh, so it's always yeah. just a lot of fun sitting around talking poetry with you on Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern time over on Twitter. Thanks, Katie. Thanks very much, Tim. Yep. Take care. Uh, Katie Dozier, our prompt poems editor. And now we have a lot of people on the open line. So what I'm going to do, this is how we're going to structure the open lines a little bit more. I mentioned that I was uh, trying to get our iTunes viewership. iTunes only recently released actual analytics. Um, I got nothing before. And I see that that you know people aren't watching the whole show. And I think sh- sh- cutting it down a little bit for the uh, audio version might be helpful. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a few of the best open line poems. And those are going to be the ones that uh that we're going to have in the audio version um to shorten up i'm going to try to make them like 90 minutes instead of the two hours and you know just over two hours that it's been so we'll cut it down a little bit hopefully that'll help with the uh with the reach of these because we really want these poems to spread everywhere we can and uh so if you are uh looking for your own poems on the itunes um sometimes they'll be there and sometimes not but we're going to pick some good ones every week now um and then the other thing is i'm going to go as long as you're here Either in the chat, I want to share a poem, or you're here in the Zoom, I'm going to try to get you in. Um, but we'll try to be as quick as we can, too, so we can get through as many people as possible. Again, it is a one-poem limit, two-page max, but try to be sh- as short as possible with the poem so we can get to as many people as we can. Uh, you know, when it's a dozen people, it's easy, but it's two dozen right now, so we got to make sure we get through poems and get everybody a turn to share. But I just love hearing everybody's poems on the open lines. So um, let's go first to Dick Westheimer, who wasn't here last week. Um, hey, Dick, how you doing? Hey, Tim. I'm doing okay. Yeah, well, it's great to have you back. I mean, we missed you for sure, um, but it's good to see you again. Oh, well, thanks. I, 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 I hated, hated to miss and feel so welcomed by this group and by your 80, 90 folks on the YouTube feed. It was just wonderful to have all that interaction. Yeah, it was a good number, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll keep that up, too. Um, yeah. So, so what do you want to share this week, Dick? Um, I sent you uh, through the email a copy of my um, uh, Poets Respond poem, very mm-hmm. short one. Yeah. Um, I can explain it. I, actually, I don't have to explain it. The The title is the headline from the Washington Post article, um, and the epigraph was the last line in the article. So mm-hmm. you can, folks can... Um, extrapolate from there and uh, if not they can go read the article themselves there we go officiant fire oh and it's a golden shovel which I wrote from the um, um, uh, from the um, uh, last line in the story Um, officiant fires gun to welcome bride shoots grandson and the wedding goes on And the epigraph is, God wasn't surprised by what happened that day by the officiant who shot his nephew and then continued on with the wedding. It is true that the God of guns and black powder wasn't phased by the shot going off, not surprised by the shredded skin and shattered bone, or even by the shooter who blessed the groom and completed the I do's. What else could be done but kiss the bride who happened to know what guns can do? She'd seen it in other women's eyes, the blood that was the wife price, the worst, the for worse of her wedding day. 
No, that was beautiful poem and a really strange, interesting story there too, Dick, to point out. Uh, Efficient fires gun to welcome bride, shoots grandson, and the wedding goes on. I mean, what a world we live in where that's a possible headline. Yeah. Well, he that turned out the guy had 21 other grandchildren, so maybe that's why it wasn't so <laughs> Oh, wow. Well, uh, yeah, thanks for sharing that, Dick. It's great to have you back. It's always a pleasure seeing yeah, you. Thanks so Good to see you. Appreciate you. Bye. Bye. It was Dick Westheimer. And uh, now I see a bouncing uh, person in a chair over here. And we're going to move to our uh, youngest guest ever on the Rattlecast. <laughs> hey, this is uh, Elizabeth Dozier Moshman. Hello, Lizzie. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How about you? I'm doing great. So you, uh, as uh, you know, and everybody at home probably does too, because they probably subscribe to Rattle, you were one of the poets in the uh, 2023 Rattle Young Poets Anthology. Now hold it up. Yeah, I so am. Awesome. So what was it like to see your your poem in print when you got the magazine in the mail? Was it fun? Yeah, it was really fun when I got it. Yeah. And uh, so can you, your, your poem was, uh, My Scooter Goes Fast Down the Hill. Do you remember uh, writing that and, uh, and how it came to be? Is it based on a true story? Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, tell me. You can tell me you like to ride your scooter. I like to ride my scooter a lot. It's basically just what I ride every single day, kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's a great poem. Uh, why don't you go ahead and read it? This is, uh, yeah, Lizzie's poem from Rattle Number, or the Rattle Young Poets Anthology 2023. Go ahead, Lizzie. Okay, my scooter goes fast down the hill, and I look at the sky and tree branches. The sun was smiling, but I fell down. I saw the sky again. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> Thanks so much for sharing that, Lizzie. It's great to see you um, in uh, your mom's chair there, and uh, thanks for sharing this awesome poem for everybody. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. Yep. Thanks. Bye, Lizzie. Bye-bye. Yeah, that was Lizzie Dozier-Moshman with uh, My Scooter Goes Fast Down the Hill. And we wanted to share that uh, now because I thought it was a good time since um, the deadline for next year's Rattle Young Poets Anthology is coming up. It's November 1st. So if you know a young poet, uh, you know, famously, uh, Jane, or uh, not Jane Hirschfield, uh, Sharon Old says there's not a there's not a bad poet in the third grade. And that is so true. There's so much magic and uh, mystery and understanding in young poets. And we love to be able to share those every year in the Rattle Young Poets Anthology. So if you know of any young poets, uh, it'd just be wonderful if you could help spread the word and share. And, and you can submit poems on their behalf as long as you have their permission. Um, and they can submit poems, too. It's poets age 15 and younger. And once again, the deadline is November 1st, and we put out that chapbook every summer of poems by young people, which is really great to see. There's this childlike quality that we're all striving toward as poets, finding that mystery of the world and seeing things in new ways. And, uh, you know, young poets have that automatically, so it's always great to see. So uh, thanks again to Lizzie for sharing that poem with us and reminding everybody that you can do that. Yep, bye, Lizzie. Uh, Next is Audrey Friedman in line. Hello, Tim. Hey, Audrey. Great to see you. Good to see everybody. Um, I did a prompt poem that was about my first job. Um, It seems immoral that anybody would give me that job, but I dispensed mercurochrome and Band-Aids after wiping skinned elbows and knees with hydrogen peroxide all things that had been done for me, making sure I cleaned all traces of sand or grit from the broken skin. I dried tears with Kleenex and gave a little hug when needed. 
in the 60s, that was still acceptable. There I was at 16 in charge of first aid at the Seaview Swim Club with only the sparks of maternal instincts. Throwing off light like distant stars, my mother, my universe. Oh, that's great. And again, a uh, great example, too, of the uh, the use of the dash in the middle of the second line, which is what uh, Penny Harder kind of taught me. She had a bunch of those like that, and I never uh, thought of doing it that way, but that's really cool use of that. Thanks, Audrey, for sharing that. You're welcome. Yeah, it was Audrey Friedman with uh, I Dispense Mercurochrome and Band-Aids, a really interesting memory of a first poem. And next, let's go to, oh, Brent Stauffer is here, another one who has not been here in a long time. It's great to see you, Brent. Hey, Tim. How's it going? It's going great. Where have you been? Oh, my schedule got all messed up, but I think I have fixed that problem, and, and uh, hopefully, I'll, uh, hopefully I'll be around more. Oh, that's great. I, things we, have changed. Had, yeah. <laughs> well, me and Katie would talk about we miss you a lot, so it's really great to see you. Actually, my mom brought you up, too. She was like, where's Brent Stauffer? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we all miss you. Oh, that's great. It's good to see you. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. It's good to be seen. Yeah, and and, and um, I I love what you've done with the place. Yeah, it's really uh, uh, uh <laughs> there's a, and there's a lot of people here. It's awesome. Yeah, it's yeah. great. Yeah, we got to cram it yeah. in, but it's wonderful uh, having so many. And there's all this is a, you know, it's going <laughs> how I always hoped. It's really uh, kind of perfect. And yeah, so as much mentioned in the comments, the beard, <laughs> the beard is uh, yeah, actually perfect at this point. Me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, Nate's beard puts mine to shame. I think it's a beard but, contest. Uh, I wonder yeah. if got me, you, and Nate. Yeah. They're, all, they're all racing beards. <laughs> all right. So you got a, you got a, um, well, a hyphen for us. Yes, I have a hyphen because I aim to please. <laughs> and uh, no, it just it just kind of, um, it's it. I, I decided to write a hyphen because it's been coming up. Uh, like it was in a lecture that I was listening to on a podcast yesterday. Um, and then uh, a few days ago in a workshop that I go to, somebody brought a hyphen. And then, of course, Katie's example that I saw on Facebook was a hyphen. And I was, I've was i been meaning to try one, so I did. Excellent. Okay, well, let's see. And, uh, it was, and it was really fun. Okay. Oh, and my first job also was at a swimming pool, and I was also 16, just like Audrey. So oh, that's great. interesting. Um, <clears throat> it's called A Slow and Sudden Transformation. I was reborn in the water. On land, only a clumsy collection of odd elbows and knees. Once submerged in Crestwood Pool, I became a quick quiet creature of strength and grace. For three summers, I would reach the edge of the shallow end and have to stop, tottering on quaking legs while adult arms beckoned from the water and promised safety. Fear said I would die, and I believed it. No grown-up could be as persuasive, insistent, and loud, until one convinced me to trust her in all things. Thanks, Allison. At 16, training to become a lifeguard, they had me dive into the deep end and try to save a drowning man. As soon as he could, the drowning man clutched any part of me within his reach, leg, arm, neck, yanking me down below the water's churning surface. He was faster and stronger than me. My training, though, took over, informed my movements, slipping from his panicked embrace, turning him on his back, lugging 
his suddenly limp body toward the concrete shore. The pool is waiting. A sun rises through the pines. Reborn lifeguards wake. Yeah, that was a great story and an excellent uh, use of the Hyvins for getting that story out there. Thanks for sharing that, Brett. Man, thanks so much, Tim. And uh, man, Jane, Jane Hirschfield was phenomenal. And um, the the open mic has been great. And I'm just glad to be back. Yeah, we're glad to have you back too, for sure. Yeah, thanks, Brent. Yeah. See y'all soon. Yep, take care. It's Brent Stoffer with a slow thanks. and sudden transformation. Now, next up, let's go to uh, Nate Jacob. Hey, how hey, you doing? Nate, yeah, good to see you. Hey, it's good to be seen. Yeah, you definitely hey, I, won the beard uh, contest, though. I, I, I was thinking that maybe uh, Brent Stauffer came close, but uh, but no. <laughs> Sorry, Brent. It's so, not a contest. <laughs> it's always a contest. Anyway. <laughs> hey, I uh, I started off writing a prompt poem as a hyphen, mm-hmm. as, as so many have, but uh, I'm scared of the haiku part. So <laughs> I went ahead and broke it up into uh, short lines and finished without a haiku interesting so this is the omaha world's omaha world yes. herald's finest okay. i was a paper boy at the age of 11 excellent okay another paper boy. until i graduated high school um very good very edifying i'm sure oh yeah well we had our moments <laughs> all right i'll read it the omaha world herald's finest i walked the early morning route under skies so replete with stars that i learned to step high to gauge my path by the sound of my feet across every suburban surface, my neck craned in search of some specific to me manifestation, that the heavens were aware of me and of the irony that was me, delivering newspapers in a town where nothing was noteworthy to me, because for me, nothing ever changed, nothing was ever new. One day, a falling star streak so wide and so bright across the eastern sky that I flinched tossing the Sunday edition, landing the heavy rubber-banded wad on the peak of old man Jennings' porch roof. I returned an hour later with the ladder, but it was already gone. I returned another hour later with the second paper, but they had already gone. I left it there. Another time I made the mistake of glancing into the darkened window of the porch where I was told to always deliver quietly. When I asked my parents what I had seen, they sent me to church earlier than usual, and we agreed to never bring it up again. We delivered. We did not report the news. The stars were steady then, the sky a security blanket, newspapers leaving a kid's hands ink black and sharp smelling, the darkness of the daily news transferring too easily to the clean white shirts and the sweating foreheads of innocents who knew no better than to drop so much news once and again at the step of those who couldn't help but to read all about it. Oh, that was great. And uh, I've always wondered how it felt to be a newspaper delivery boy. I never did do that myself. Very interesting. Thanks for sharing. Well, the that. torture most of the time for an eleven. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I mean, that's a that's a lot of waking up early. Did you ever get to like what happened when he wanted to take a day off or something? Did you have like a pinch hitter come in and do it for you? I was I was one of ten children, uh-huh. so we all had pinch hitters. <laughs> all right. Well, that's at least there's that. All right. Well, thanks. Good to hear that, Nate. And always great to see you. Thanks a lot. Yeah, bye. So Nate Jacob with Omaha World Herald's finest. 
Uh, next, let's go to Laura Berg. Hey, these poems are so beautiful tonight, and I learn a lot by hearing how people approach the topic, and it is so enriching, and I'll, I'll be able to write differently because of the experience. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's how I feel, too. It's such great uh, looks at different types of poems. So I, I tried the prompt. Mm -hmm. uh, so here we go. Okay. Then it's called Slow Words. Mm -hmm. Temping at $2.10 per hour, I type 80 words per minute, some 30,000 in a day. Strange to think of words that way, how many, like a laying hand. I'd step out of snow into fluorescence, entering the telephone exchange. Rush the telephone, Co. Can I help you? Women chirped into rotary phones. Peachy pink lips shaping can for can. Flip sprayed dues, manicures. On smoking breaks, they grumble about men, kids, loans as I perched, gazing up, doing my exiled Russian noble act as if I didn't really need to work, which must have grated spoiled kid. Soon I moved on and on decades to today when as you see i'm slow with words and i don't type for money only poems sometimes it takes years for a word to find its right place oh that's great that's really interesting to think about thirty thousand words in a day that's kind of amazing uh, laura thanks for sharing that thank you yeah that was laura berg with uh, slow words really interesting and that's going to be the end of the Open Lines highlights for tonight. To see all the poems that you missed, hop back in time over on YouTube. Um, so, uh, Katie, are you still there? I think you are. I am still here. Hi. Hey, good to see you for this. I think this is literally <laughs> the longest. We've never actually gone three hours. And I think as long as I don't talk too fast, I think we might make it to three. <laughs> And the best, I have to say. I think it might be. It's been kind of really, really incredible. Yeah, it has. It's just so fun having... I just love the open lines, too. Sharing poems is just so fun. I'm glad we can all sit around and do it. It's really what makes life meaningful, as uh, Jane would probably say. So, do you want to announce next week's prompt? Yes. Next week's prompt, which first I have to give credit to Deb T, because she guessed it in the comments <laughs> during be, the round. Maybe that should be a game every week. Who can guess the prompt first? Wins I feel a... Like, yeah. I know. I think Deb may have done it last week, kind of, too. <laughs> I don't know, but she definitely did it this way, which is going to be to write an essay. There you go. So write an essay. Are we calling it a form? Is it, or is it just a type of poem? I'm not sure if it's a form or a type. You know, I tried I subtly to get Jane to clarify her opinion on that, and I think she didn't. She she went past that question, so I'm not I, sure. I don't know. It's really more. It is. I mean, if you call though, like an after poem, a poem, it's like a, a you know. I think that's a form. It's a style, a type. I don't know. But yeah. an essay is really interesting. And if you forgot that an essay, um, you know, it's a lot of times it's used in mining, but it's that that you know, examining things, breaking them apart to see what constitutes them. So a lot of essays of like ores and things like that. But what we're doing is writing an essay of some kind of topic. So break apart some kind of like feeling or some kind of object or some kind of thought or some kind of something, and then pick it apart and see what's inside in the most creative way possible. Really examine it 
depth. That's the yeah. essay. It's going to be fun, I'm right? really excited. Yeah, I'm excited to do it because it also feels very different from the prompts we've had lately that have been more grounded, you know, in in the, in the literal in a sense. So mm-hmm. it'll be really fun. So I, I'm going to picture myself like mining. That's my image <laughs> that I'm imagining when I start writing this week's prompt. Well, that sounds good. I think you got to mine first and then you got to like you know, throw acid on it and melt it. Something. I'm going to be doing a lot of sciencey stuff. <laughs> yeah, lots of sciencey stuff <laughs> coming yeah. up on the next, uh, on the next prompt poem. Thanks so much, Katie, for sharing that and for sticking around through the whole show too. Thanks very much. All right, see you in a bit. Bye. Bye. Anyways, uh, Katie Dozier with our prompt poems, our prompt poem editor. Now, uh, onto the psyku really quickly, and luckily we have a short psyku, which is uh, going to be saving the day from uh, being too long. This was based on this article I found from USC Dornsife, my, uh, my old alma mater for my uh, MFA or at a master's program or whatever. And this is uh, the article. Here we go. Uh, let me make sure you can see it. The article is right here. And then there were six kinds of taste, that is. Um, in addition to sweet, salty, sour, bitter, and umami, which I only just learned about recently, a new study suggests the tongue might also detect ammonium chloride as a basic taste. And so uh, and what they did, they did really complicated studies to see if uh, ammonium chloride could activate certain receptors on the tongue, and it could. Then they studied that in, in, a, in wild mice and then other mammals. Um, you know, chickens have really strong sense of this ammonium chloride taste uh, and we do a little bit but other animals don't and the theory is that it's because um, animals that eat in kind of a waste environment need to know what the waste is and so we can detect ammonium chloride in our food but it made me wonder like what would how could you like invent a taste or like, like discover a taste that we already have but what would that taste seem like I don't know it's a strange thought it reminds me of how um, you know it's said that the, the color blue wasn't invented until we thought of it you know, because there's like, it's the wine dark sea. It's not the blue sea um, in any of, of those old epics. And uh, so there's this idea that we didn't understand or even see blue until we could, um, like, had a word for it, right? And so now that we have a word, well, they need to make a word. But once they make a word for the sixth taste, maybe we'll start to taste something new. But in the meantime, this is the Saiku. And actually, I, um, hang on a second, I forgot to write it out. So, I have to remember what it was. But luckily, like I said, the Saiku is short. So I'm going to type it out right now. And here is the Saiku for this week. The sixth scent. Synesthesia. There you go. That is my Manuku for this week. The sixth scent synesthesia. And that is your uh, Saiku for this week. And that is the show for this week. Thanks, everybody, for uh, sharing your poems and this wonderful interview with Jane Hirschfield, which I learned a whole lot about poetry. You really couldn't learn more from anybody else than Jane Hirschfield. So I'm so glad she could be a guest. Now, next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be, drumroll, drumroll, Marianne Corbett. Uh, Marianne was in several issues of Rattle. She's a formalist, which is really fun. She's also worked uh, in Minnesota state politics, too, which is interesting. Her new book is The O in the Air. Um, you can see a Minnesota-E-type cold cover on that photo. Uh, that's a guest, Marianne Corbett. It's going to be fun to talk to her, focusing on, I assume, uh, formal poetry, because that's what she mostly writes. Uh, that's going to be next week's guest on Rattlecast 215 with a prompt to write an essay. Uh, Monday, October 16th, the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I will talk to you later. Good night.